0: Are you familiar with Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman is a a best-selling writer. He's written not just lost scriptures, but he wrote Misquoting Jesus. Misquoting Jesus is supposedly the story behind who changed the Bible and why. He wrote another book. uh, That, by the way, was a New York Times bestseller. He wrote another book entitled Forgeries. Forgeries is a book, and clearly my PowerPoint's fouled up a little bit here, so I apologize for that. But forgeries is the idea that these books in the Bible were not actually written by an authoritative source. They're forgeries. New York Times bestseller. And then he wrote Lost Scriptures, the idea that there are these books that could just as properly be in the Bible, but the church purposefully kept them out to push the political and religious agenda of certain power brokers within the church. Now, normally I would sit back and say, oh, that's just nothing. But Bart Ehrman is not just a normal person. Bart Ehrman, who writes these books, has a very, very strong CV, resume, stud sheet, whatever you want to call it. Let me tell you about Bart Ehrman. He says he was born again when he was 17 years old. He spent three years at Moody Bible Institute, famous because Bible is their middle name. From there he went to Wheaton, another conservative Christian school, where he took a bachelor's degree in English. Went to study... At Princeton Theological Seminary, because Princeton at the time had the best department in figuring out what the original Greek manuscripts would have looked like. The world leader in that for the 20th century was a scholar named Bruce Metzger. And he taught at Princeton. Ehrman not only took an, an MDiv, a Master's of Divinity there, but he took his PhD from there. During the time that he was there... He changed his view on the authority of Scripture. Bart Ehrman changed from being an evangelical to what he would have termed a liberal Christian. And that change was based upon how he saw Scripture differently. He from there proceeded to become an agnostic. And at this point in his life and for the last however many years, says he doesn't know if there's a God or not. This man is a chaired professor of religion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He teaches an Introduction to New Testament class, among others, that will generally have between three and 400 students in it. You have an agnostic who does not believe in the integrity of Scripture, doesn't believe that it's God-sent or anything of that nature, does not believe in Jesus as a resurrected Savior, who is teaching three to four hundred students an introduction to the New Testament class. He writes scholarly books, and he writes popular books. Let me show you. When I say he writes scholastic books, this is what I'm talking about. That's, it's different than writing a popular book. The scholastic books he writes... Uh, if you write a scholastic book it should be a logical book would you agree with me ought to be logical a b c d if you're writing a scholastic book and you draw a line and keep it separate from the popular books it ought to be fair scholastic books if you're going to argue an agenda you at least ought to argue it fairly you ought to say here is all of the data or here are the major opinions I advocate this opinion, this is why. If you're writing a scholastic book, it ought to be documented. It ought to say for anything that that might even remotely be controversial or for anything that you are uh, 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 taking from someone else. You should document it and you should say, here is my source. Toward that end, your documentation and what you say in a scholastic work should be accurate. Now that's what a scholastic work is. A popular work? -uh. A popular work is readable. It's for the populace. It's not for the scholars. It's for the people who just want something to read. A popular work can be sensational it can have the tabloid headline that makes you at the supermarket look around to see if you know anybody before you take it off and start looking through to see if that flying saucer really landed it needs to not just be readable and sensational and I put readable up there twice because it's so important but All of that scholastic stuff about being logical and fair and documented and accurate, those aren't issues in a popular work. You don't have to have all of the documentation and all the footnotes. You don't have to be fair. You don't have to be logical. You don't have to be accurate. You don't have to say, here are all of the viewpoints. Because people generally don't even care to read all of the viewpoints. A popular work is not a scholastic work. The books that I'm talking about from from Ehrman are his popular books. Now, I've got issues with his scholastic books, too. But that's not what we're discussing here. I want to talk about his popular works. These are works that are readable. You can tell he was an English major. Writes very well. But they're very sensational. You don't call a book forgeries. Misquoting Jesus. And those are tabloid-esque headlines. You expect that on the National Enquirer front page. Not from a scholastic book, certainly. So these popular books are Bart Ehrman's entree into our houses and entree to our children and grandchildren. You say, oh, but who reads it? Well, it put him on the cover of Time magazine and got him nominated as Man of the Year. He's been on most every TV show. The sensationalism of it all is quite appealing to a lot of people. Now, I want to talk about today the accuracy of the New Testament. And the accuracy of the New Testament involves misquoting Jesus. It involves whether or not the text of the New Testament is correct. But it also involves his second book, Forged. Whether or not the books of the New Testament have authority behind them. And then it also involves his book, Lost Scriptures. Is the New Testament that we have a thorough and proper New Testament? Is it the right canon? And that's what we're going to talk about here. Those three questions, misquoting Jesus, how reliable is the text, how authoritative are the books of the New Testament, and how reliable is the canon? Now we can't do all of that even remotely close in one week. So I hope that you will bear with me. And if you are ever going to read a Bart Ehrman book, my initial idea is borrow one of mine because I hate the thought of him getting even more money. He makes hundreds of thousands of dollars with his sensational views. But if you are going to read one, read one now in reference to us doing this class. Because these are dangerous poisons. He knows enough and he writes well enough to produce a toxic product. So today we're going to talk about how reliable is the text. And for us to do this, you need to know where I come from. I want to be very upfront with you. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Now I want to define for you inerrancy. Because I want there to be no bones about where I come from. And I want to persuade you to join me. And if you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, I'd like to change your mind. I'd like to suggest maybe if you don't believe it's because you may think inerrancy is something different than at least what I believe it to be. This is my definition. The original Scriptures are God's true and valid communication to man in the form and the manner God has chosen. Now those words, each one of them are deliberate by me. I'm talking about the original scriptures. I could take, if I had the autographed copy of Paul's letter to the Romans with my horrible Greek skills, I could translate that into English and butcher it. The original scripture would be Paul's autograph, not Mark's butchered translation. But the original scriptures are God's true and valid communication to man. True, the words are not false. They are true. And valid, they are appropriate. They are true and valid. God communication to man. And that's the key. There are lots of holy writings of antiquity. You can go back and read Old Testament era writings of lots of different people from the area, the ancient Near East. But what those old writings are, they're man's musings about God. That's what man is writing as he thinks of who God is or what God is or God's plural or what the gods are doing and whether they're sane or crazy. Holy Scripture is different because the idea is it's God. ...who initiates, and it's God's communication, revelation to humanity. But, it's in the form and manner that God has chosen. So if on Sinai, God wants to inscribe on stone tablets His Ten Commandments... ...that's the form and manner He has chosen. But, if God wants to inspire Paul who's writing a letter to a church, trying his hardest prayerfully to address the issues in that church, and God's going to work through Paul to do that, then that's the form and manner God has chosen. If God wants to do it poetically, that's his prerogative. I'm not going to say, oh no, Lord, you're not allowed to use poetry. If God wants to do it through prose, if God wants to do it through a prophetic word, if he wants to do it apocalyptically, it's up to him, not me. That's inerrancy, as I will be using the word. So with that, let's start talking about how reliable is the text. We're going to start with some background information. A lot of this is, not a lot, a little of this is retread. We always, those of you who are faithful to be here every week, we want to keep that flow going. We talked about the past uh, couple of weeks how the world changed after the close of the Old Testament. How it went from a time of Persian domination through a time of Greek domination when Alexander the Great conquered the known world by and large. And that time passed. By the time of Christ, Romans had, well, Alexander died. His uh, uh, empire was divided up among his generals and others. But eventually the western power of Rome, once they took care of Carthage, started moving east and taking care of business. But while Alexander and his uh, 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 progeny, were ruling the world. They took the Greek language and they took the Greek culture, they took the Greek scholastic system, and they made it available at least to the wealthy and to the transplanted Greek speakers throughout the world, including Palestine. In fact, some Palestine, excuse me, I was thinking of East Texas. In fact, in fact, that was an issue of great problem as we talked about with the Maccabian Revolt. In the 175 B.C. era, the question was, can they keep Jewish heritage or did they just need to go wholesale Greek? So, remember this Greek influence. Because by the time we get to the New Testament Scriptures, we've now got writings that are in Greek. Greek has become the dominant language of commerce, of culture, and of education even in the area of what we would now call Israel. So Greek is the predominant learned language, and our New Testament is written in Greek. Now that doesn't mean the events happened in Greek. Jesus, by all accounts, spoke Aramaic and likely Hebrew. He certainly read from Isaiah the prophet at synagogue... So he's got Hebrew ability, but he speaks also Aramaic, we know from the Gospels. So what the Gospels, the New Testaments written in Greek, oh, I'm not saying there's not an occasional, uh, you've got a Latin phrase uh, on the cross, you've got uh, uh, Aramaic from Jesus being spoken out, it's Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, you've got the various names that, that may be foreign, But your New Testament's written in Greek about events that happened in Hebrew and Aramaic. Which, by the way, is the reason when we get into the synoptic issue, which is the reason one gospel writer may use one word to translate an event, while another gospel writer may use another Greek word to translate an event. If the event is one that happened or or something that was said in Hebrew or Aramaic, it's not just a one-for-one transfer. You can use different words to get the fullness. So we'll work through that when we get to it. But for right now, we need to put this into a little chart. So most events, they happened in Hebrew and Aramaic, but the New Testament gets written into Greek. That's the seminal writing. Those are the autograph copies. That's Matthew through Revelation. Now some scholars will say, well I think Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. We don't have any manuscripts to that effect. Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But the manuscripts that we've got indicate that we have Greek originals. So those are our, we're going to call those autograph copies. That's the letter that if someone wrote, and when Paul says, see with what large letters, I've signed this with my own name. These are the autographed copies. This is the original. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Paul actually sat there and physically wrote them. He dictated them, though he might have signed his name or wrote something else at the end, a personal note. But it's important that we know that, that these, as dictated to secretaries, can also explain some different languages and different vocabulary usage by the secretaries who took them down and probably then reread them to Paul to see if they have it adequately right. Aside from that, the New Testament's written in Greek. Now here's the problem. If I'm going to write Miss Carolyn a letter, I can write that letter and I can give it to her, but if all of you want a copy, she's got a couple of choices. She can scan it into the computer and just email Kraber, and he'll pass it to the world. Or she can take it to Kinko's and get a copy made and pass that to the world. Neither of those options were available in the New Testament times. You want a copy? Get your pen out. Go buy some of that expensive paper and figure out how to write it. And you can sit there, and there were two different ways. One way is you sit there and go, uh-huh, huh huh uh-huh, uh-huh. and the other is to get maybe five or ten people who are good at writing and have one person who can stand up and read it and so when one person reads it and ten people write it it's like getting ten copies made at once it's the first xerox machine judge <laughs> so you got these different ways you can do it but that's what they were doing now by the time we get into the 300s, the Roman Empire's been around for quite a while. By the way, scriptures, the autographs, they're already gone probably. When we, we've got a lot of accounts in early church history when Christians were persecuted. One of the ways they'd determine whether or not they were Christian was whether or not they had scriptures. They would burn the scriptures along with the Christians. So the scriptures are getting destroyed right and left. Another reason that so many copies are being made, along with the desire and need to have that information. So by the time we get into the three or four hundreds, the bishop at Rome, the head of the Roman church, who has a great bit of authority in the Western world, decides that the scriptures need to be in everybody's common language. And by 375, only in the Eastern world did they speak Greek still. The Western world spoke Latin, which is the first Roman language in our classifications. That's why we call Latin and the languages that came from it, French, Italian, Spanish, uh, not really English, but uh, uh, what else? French, Italian, Spanish, we got more than that. Those are yes, Portuguese. Those are romance languages, not because it's hey hey hey, but because it's <laughs> it's uh, Roman. They're from the Roman tongue. Okay. So the Pope Pope Damasus I he's got this fellow named Jerome who's a troublesome guy. And so there's a little push-pull in their relationship. DeMasis basically says, hey, why don't you spend your time translating Scripture into the common language, Latin. Latin as a common language, it's the vulgar language. Vulgar means common in its root. So he does that. We call it the Vulgate. Doesn't get it all done there in Rome. Pope dies, Jerome wants to be next pope. Jerome doesn't get to be next pope. Jerome heads off to Bethlehem to finish it up. But within the four early 400s, the Bible has been translated into Latin. So now we've got events in Hebrew, Aramaic, New Testament written in Greek. it's translated into Latin, and the church runs on Latin juice for the next thousand-plus years. A thousand years later, let's roll to the 1500s. Latin is no longer the common language. Most people don't even speak Latin, unless you're a priest. Latin is for the mass, but not the masses. Come on, that's pretty good. Latin was for the mass, but not the masses. Okay, that's all right. I'll, I'll keep trying. So, so there's a decision made in a lot of different places to start translating the Bible into common language again and uh, uh, translate it into French translated into English. And in the 1500s, these translations into contemporary languages start. Now, did you notice I misspelled translated? If you copied my slide exactly, you would misspell it too. You might even come up with a couple other misspellings. That's called a change or a variant reading from what was originally intended. So now in the 1500s, you've got people who are translating these scriptures. And the thought is, hey, why should I translate those scriptures that were of Hebrew-Aramaic events, written into Greek, translated to Latin? Why should I use the Latin to now translate it into a modern language? Wouldn't it be better if I kind of passed over that Latin and translated them straight from the Greek? Cut out the middleman. Get a better translation. Who knows how Jerome and others messed it up anyway. And so this was being done. But there's a problem here. Can you guess what the problem is? For over a thousand years, the church hadn't been using Greek manuscripts much. So, where are they going to get them? How are they going to translate this? This is the problem. Where do they find copies of the Greek? Enter into the picture a Dutch fellow named Erasmus. Really, really, really good, smart, brilliant guy. Erasmus enters the picture because he is going to beat the Spaniards and get to print and publish the first Greek New Testament so that scholars can use that Greek New Testament to translate into modern languages. So Erasmus goes and he gets a translation and and, and he he does this uh, 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 Greek version, publishes it in 1516. It's a, a landmark publication. Remember Gutenberg had just invented movable type in 1450. So we're 66 years from that. So he produces this Greek New Testament, but decisions, decisions, decisions. What shall he do? Because he had six copies of the Greek New Testament. None of them complete. A little bit here and a little bit there. But of those copies that he had, they they, they weren't very old. The oldest one dated from the 1100s. Well, if the New Testament's written in the first century, that's over a thousand years after the New Testament was written. That's a lot of people copying and copying the copy and copying the copy and copying the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy. And there are lots of mistakes that get into the manuscript when you do that. There just are. So decisions, decisions. For example, 1 John 2.23 Now, if you have your uh, your English Standard Version, 1 John 2.23 says this. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Alright? Now, if you had, and I brought up here for people to get a chance to come look at after class if you want to. Here is a first edition of the King James. This is 1611. The first authorized version of Scripture into English. Authorized by the crown. There were other versions, but this is the first. And I scanned in this page, or this portion, of 1 John 2.23 out of the first edition, King James. I want you to see it. God's Great Love is just the title for what this page is talking about. But 2.23 says, now you're thinking that says, Hufo uwu. But that's because the S's in the middle of a word looked like our F's today. That's, and their V's look like U's. That's why if you put two V's together, you get a double U. Alright? Whosoever denieth the Sonny That's the way they spelled son. Whosoever denieth the son, the same hath not the Father? But he that also acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Did you see the different print? They used a different type font for the second half of that verse. Why? Well, I've put Erasmus in front of you, but Erasmus' text was then printed by a fellow named uh, Robert Estian, or Stephanus. And I've brought a copy of his 1549 Greek New Testament. And it was the Stephanos New Testament, by and large, that the King James writers used to produce the King James. He's the one who added verses to the New Testament. And if you look at it, what you're going to see is it doesn't have the second part of that verse. It doesn't have the, but he that acknowledgeth the Son has the Father also. It's missing. From the Greek. Yet the translators knew it belonged in there. So they put it in anyway because they had the Latin and they had other opportunities to see it from other places. So they knew it belonged in there even though the Greek New Testament didn't have it in there. Why was it missing? Because Erasmus only had six manuscripts and they were very, very recent, they weren't old and they were missing that portion I'll explain why in a minute so that's the problem what was the solution if you've got a problem like that what is your solution your problem is you've got uh, you've got manuscripts that are very deficient you've only got a couple of them and they're not very old so what do you wanna do you wanna go get all you can get better manuscripts go get some old ones and it started the race to find old Greek manuscripts. And it's a thrilling race that we can talk about. But if we put Erasmus back on the blackboard, put his six manuscripts with the oldest being 1100, here's a Greek New Testament today. If you were taking Greek in my college, this is what one of your textbooks was. Do you know how many Greek manuscripts we have of the New Testament today? This isn't the whole New Testament. These are Some of them are fragments, some of them just a few verses. Today, somewhere around 5,500 different manuscripts. Our oldest fragment, a lot of scholars will date the John Ryland's papyrus, which is a segment of John. They'll date it to about 125 A.D. Now, there is some... Uh, Later scholarship that's challenging that. There is some other scholarship that says it should be earlier. But when you figure John wrote his gospel 90-ish A.D., that's pretty close. That's real close. That's as close as we are to, like, Ronald Reagan. So, oldest New Testament fragment, about 125 A.D. Now, we have some marvelous, huge New Testaments and scriptures. This is the Codex uh, Vaticanus. The Codex Vaticanus is called that because codex means book. It's in the Vatican. This is not the original. If it was, we would all be arrested for just being this close to it. But Pope John Paul II authorized 450 of these to be facsimile reproduced in 1999. We're fortunate enough to have one of them. And you can see exactly what it is. And it's amazing what happened. So let's, with that kind of background, I want we've only got 14 minutes left, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the accuracy of the text because that's what's really at issue. You see, Bart Ehrman makes the following statements. He says, some scholars will tell you there are 200,000 differences between these 5,500 manuscripts. He's saying there are 200,000 differences in the New Testament text. He says, some tell you 300, some tell you 400. He says, I don't know. I think it's somewhere around three hundred to 400,000 would be my guess. See, this is how you tell it's not scholarly. No footnotes, no anything. But I don't think he's wrong. I think he's correctly saying, if you look at all 5,500 plus or minus manuscripts, you'll find different readings in over 20,0, 300,000 places. And what Bart Ehrman wants you to do is think, oh my goodness, this can't be reliable. And he draws some atrocious conclusions that I want to look at. But I also want to examine his facts because I don't think he's as fair with them as he should be. Let's start with the conclusions. First of all, he says the Bible's not inspired. Here's the way he said it. Why would, and I don't know what's messing up there, but let's see if we can make it through and I'll fix the slide for the internet. Why would one think that God performed the miracle of inspiring the words in the first place if he did not perform the miracle of preserving the words? If he meant to give us his very words, why didn't he make sure we received them? And this is the toxic poison. If God inspired Scripture, if this is supposed to be God's holy word and he inspired it and it's inerrant, then why didn't he make sure we got it in its inspired way? If we put back up the chalkboard, here is his logic. Let's get it all up there. Three points of logic here. One, if God verbally inspired the Bible, then God would preserve the words from being corrupted. Two, the words... Were corrupted. Therefore, three, God did not verbally inspire the Bible. And this is his logic. If God verbally inspired the Bible, then he would preserve the words from corruption. The words were corrupted. Therefore, God did not verbally inspire the Bible. Now, I agree with him on point two. The words were corrupted. Where he stumbled is right out of the gate on point one. He's just flat wrong. He's logically wrong, he's unfair, and he's not stating the truth. Let me explain. Point one. Here's my passage of Scripture. We're going to use the Old Testament as an example here. Paul writes in Romans, and he asks this question, after he said that Gentiles are under sin and condemnation and Jews are under sin and condemnation, he asks this question. He says, so what advantage was there to being a Jew? He says, well, lots. To start out with, the Jews, let's get it up there, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Old Testament, he's calling the words, but the the holy words, the oracles of God. And he says the Jews were entrusted with those. Now, that word entrusted is the one I want to look at. It was given to them in trust. They had a responsibility to keep it. Scripture is, you know, Ehrman says you got a choice. This is either a divine book or a human book. And he's wrong. Those aren't the only two choices. It's C, all of the above. This book is both divine and human. God's oracles god's divinely inspired scriptures have been entrusted to mankind it's a joint thing we've got going on god didn't say i'm gonna write it and then i'm going to make every copy and anybody who even tries you take your pen and you just try to mess up i will physically alter the laws of the universe so that as you're writing a c it becomes a k i am going to alter your spelling That's not the way God has worked. That's not what God said he would do. And if inspiration means it's God's word delivered in the manner and the form in which he chooses, he has said, I'm going to take my oracles and I will entrust them to my people. Now, once you entrust something to a human, how long do you think it's going to stay perfect? About that long. Unless it's a lawyer. (laughs) I can't even get my slides right. Once you entrust it to a human, it's a whole different ball game. But that's what God has done. And I would suggest to you, and I'll show you in a moment, Scripture will also teach us that in addition to entrusting it to humanity, God has ensured that His message of salvation will be secure. It's the kind of thing like, we'll trust our kids with the car, but not to drive to New York. Okay, I mean, there, there are some limits. And that's what we have. So this idea, if God verbally inspired the Bible, then he would preserve the words from corruption, that's not in the Bible. And that's not logical. God can verbally inspire the Bible and still allow copyists to make a misspelling when they're copying it. Or to accidentally drop a phrase. That doesn't mean, oh, you know, doesn't work. That's the purpose of the inerrancy statement. Remember this slide. Original scriptures, God's true and valid communication to man in the form and the manner God has chosen. This is why we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God revealed in the Bible. We, don't, we, we didn't sing praise to the ESV this morning. All to the ESV, I surrender. Just mention the name ESV. And the power of the name ESV. No. So God produces Scripture. He entrusts them to man. We're going to see the same principle, though I'll use different passages, for how God put the canon together through man and through his spirit for how God selected what's in and what's out. And that will be coming up, but not there today. God did this in a way where the scriptures, and this is again Paul writing about the scriptures And he's writing about those same scriptures that were entrusted to man. And you can read the Old Testament and you can tell that there are some things that have been messed up in the transmission of it. And scholars work hard to try to figure it out. You know, does the Aleph mean a thousand or does the Aleph mean a clan? When it's talking about the number of Israelites that left Egypt. Now, there are some places where there may have been some, but, but even still, Paul's able to affirm to Timothy that these scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that God will ever let happen to his word to distort that message. In fact, you take all of his logic and everything he's put up there, and you cross out his untruth, and everything else has to disappear, Because what you actually have is God can verbally inspire and entrust it to humanity. And humanity then can muck it up like we do everything else. And then try to work on it through His Spirit. Knowing assuredly the whole time, Scriptures are still able to make you wise unto salvation. He says in in 2 Timothy 3.16, to study the, the Scriptures, to make yourself approved unto God. A workman having no need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. We've got enough to where we can rightly divide it. The word of God, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the marrow and the bone. You've got all of these statements about Scripture that had been entrusted to man. Because God still oversees them. Now, if that's true, then what about these facts? What about those 200,000 differences? 300,000, 400,000. Let's throw them up there, okay? Throw up the the 300,000 differences. You know what most of them are? Spelling. Oh, there are two Ks in Ecclesia. I thought there was just one. Spelling. You take out the spelling. Oh, you know what else is a big problem? Lots of them. Word flips, where they change the order of two words. Whoops. And then there are some obvious slip-ups, like the 1 John 2.23. Here's that 1 John 2.23 passage. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Then you've got it down in the bottom in the King James. But look at that yellow I put up there. That's a, that's a more literal translation of the Greek, where I've charted the Greek word order for you. All who deny the Son not the father has the one who acknowledges the son the father has and some scribe who's keeping copy and doing it by candlelight late at night or somebody who's reading it to everybody else said the father has has the father i'm sorry has the father has the father the father has and they say it and then they see the exact same greek words and their brain just skipped the line that's not hard to figure out. That's the, Even the King James guys figured that one out. I'm, I don't mean that bad. Um, so the facts, you've got 300,000 differences, you've got misspellings, you've got word flips, you've got slip-ups. What do you have left when you take out the things that are so obvious? How many out of 5,000 plus manuscripts, how many serious issues are there in the New Testament where scholars really say, Hey, you know, I don't know if it's A or B. Care to guess? Less than ten. And not one of them makes any difference in doctrine or practice unless you are a snake handler. In which event the ending of Mark may influence you one way or the other. They just don't. Now, I'm I'm running out of time, but i just got to tell you, we took, uh, Simon Gathercole uh, uh, helped me with this. We took a page out of the Vaticanus. This is a 350 A.D. manuscript. And it had been written over in the 8th century because the ink was getting dry. And when the guy wrote over it in the 8th century, he changed one of the words. And then in the 13th century, a scribe came back and fixed it. And in the margin, right down there, he wrote a little note on that word that he fixed. The note said, he doesn't have hyphens. I've put the Greek there in a little bit more readable language for you. Let me translate it the way Simon Gavricole did for us last night. Stupidest and wicked man, leave the original. Don't change it. <laughs> I don't have time to tell you how it changed it. It just changed it from the idea of he revealed the universe by the power of his word to he upholds the universe. They dropped out the two letters, the alpha and the new. Just changed Phaneron to Pharaon. So those types of changes are there. But I'll tell you, I land with Paul without any hesitation in my mind. Just because I don't have the autographed copies, to me that's a testimony to martyrs who gave their lives because of what they believed. Because those autographs, more times than not, would have been destroyed in that process of the martyrdom of the saints. And I'll land with Paul... I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. The scriptures make me wise unto salvation. Paul doesn't say I know what I've believed. He says I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced he is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. He's guarding his scripture, but he's doing that through man. He's guarding me through his Holy Spirit. He will guard me. And it's a wonderful thing. The scriptures properly show us the Jesus that we can trust. The gospel message is not in any shape, form, or fashion even remotely altered by anything Bart Ehrman would have ever put down there. Number two, Paul told Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's especially poignant on this lesson. Because at the time they don't have the New Testament put together. Paul's writing this referring to the Old Testament. Those oracles entrusted to the Jews which had gone through verbal transmission, written transmission, editings, all of these things... Paul recognized the Jews had fulfilled their obligation well, and those writings were still able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And they are. That's no less true today. Last point. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Why do I put that up there? Be really, really careful if you start reading religious garbage. Just be careful. Because if you're not armed to handle it, some of the religious garbage can really start messing with your mind. Don't get me wrong. I don't don't have any fear that, oh, it's going to change the truth. No. God's truth is God's truth. You just need to be prepared. Next week we'll look, I think at the ten differences in Scripture. Let me show you why they don't make a difference. So if you'll come back next week, we'll do that, and then we'll deal with the canon. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we stop and we proclaim with joy that you have delivered a message to us and you've entrusted it, even working through the frailties of man, so that your message, your teaching, what we need to know, just not only for salvation, but for righteousness, That all of these things you have insured for us. We thank you that we have so many thousands of copies so that we can look through. We thank you for the scholars who are able to look through. And see how accurate and full your word is for us today. Father, if there are people who doubt the integrity of your word, it is my prayer. Prayer that they will continue in diligent study and you will open up their eyes to the incredible way you have reached down to communicate to us and teach us who you are and who we can become. We pray this through the name and the blood of Jesus. Amen.